You're listening to One Planet Podcast interview with Chris Funk, director of the Climate Hazard Center at UC Santa Barbara. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Chris Funk, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thanks, Mia. It's wonderful to be here. So you write, the story of this book began with a dream, and I believe you're going to share a little bit of that dream with us from drought, uh, flood, fire, and how climate change contributes to recent catastrophes. Sure, sure. Do you want me? I'll just tell you the story, if that's okay. I worked after college as a computer programmer and an econometric analyst for an options consulting company in, in Chicago, which... The options pits were these places where people would trade, you know, options and futures and they would yell at each other and millions of dollars could be lost in an instant. I didn't work in the pits, but I worked for people who supported people in the pits with information. And it was very hot in Chicago in the summers. And we would drive our motorcycles down at about one o'clock in the morning and, and go to Lake Michigan and hang out in the water and drink a beer and look out at the moon. And I, in my dream, I was doing that with, with my good friends and I could feel this water pulling at the back uh, of my legs as I was you know, looking out at the lake and the city was behind me. And I realized that this water that was being sucked out into the lake was going to be a, a big tsunami. There was going to be this massive tidal wave that was going to come and crash down on the city. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to get to my office in the South Loop so that I can put in a bunch of options puts and become rich. And, you know, it's kind of a funny dream, but, but it kind of it really shook me. You know, it, it, when I woke up the next day and thought about it, I was like, wow, it, what kind of person are you that when faced with this disaster, this is like your, your first instinct. And so... Yeah, that dream, you know, helped kind of mark a turning point in my life where I left my job and came out to Santa Barbara and went to, to graduate school, not really knowing, you know, what I wanted to do. But when I came here, where I still am, you know, I met a gentleman by the name of Jim Verdon, who got me involved working with the Famine Early Warning Systems Network, using earth science to try to save people's lives from famine. And, you know, 23 years later, I guess I'm still here. So, yeah. So it was a good turning point that you made that transition. And just thinking about it, there are still people betting on fossil fuels, betting on all those things. And I, it's so difficult to even fathom why they, they're continuing to back what is killing people. Uh, a complete agreement, complete agreement. And, you know, one of the things that, I tried to share, you know, in my book, Drought, Fire, Flood, is just that it, it's not hard if you look at the data to, you know, see how harmful and impactful, you know, climate change is right now, you know, as we speak. And, you know, just, you know, you know, yesterday, my colleague and friend, Shred Shukla, was sharing temperature data from his hometown in India, where his mom was, and it was, you know, 106 degrees Fahrenheit. And, you know, we're seeing horrendous droughts play out across East Africa, unprecedented level of droughts, you know, but the, but these impacts are also costing 
you know, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And the, you know, cost of reducing our, our emissions is really, you know, not that great. You know, I think the estimate is something like a, a trillion dollars a year for the entire globe, which sounds like a lot of money, but, you know, that's about 1% of global GDP. And so we can certainly afford to, to make a big dent in, in our emissions. You're talking about the different trends, creating singular events. Do you mind elaborating on the bathtub model or example that you discussed in the book? Cause I found that as somebody who is not a climate scientist, very helpful in understanding what this is. If you wouldn't mind just going over that for our listeners. That's a great question. <laughs> Something that I think it's again, essentially 90% of the uh, energy from climate change goes into the world's oceans. And the way that uh, a lot of people, including a, a lot of climate change scientists think about it is a sort of bathtub warming, right? And that everything is just kind of getting warmer slowly at the same rate. And the reason that people think that way is that for decades, a very common way to analyze climate change was to have a bunch of climate change simulations and then average them. And the pattern that emerged from that was associated with emissions in our atmosphere. That was a really great way to detect climate change, especially when the signal was pretty weak. That is a very bad way to think about climate change if you're trying to understand the climatic hazards. The analogy in the atmosphere would be that energy moves around and today it's 106 degrees in Northern India. You know, last summer it was 106 degrees in Portland. Maybe it wasn't 106, but it was sure hot, right? And so the areas of temperature extremes move around. And the same thing is true in the ocean. An incredible amount of extra energy has gone into the Indian and the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. And then it interacts with natural variability to move around. The book kind of focuses on the period, you know, kind of 2015 forward. And so we can just kind of run down the list. And in the summer of 2015, there was incredibly warm waters in the Eastern Pacific Ocean. And that's associated with an El Nino event. And that contributed to severe droughts in Ethiopia and then across Southern Africa that pushed about 45 million people into extreme food insecurity. Then the ocean cooled in the East Pacific, but became incredibly warm in the West Pacific. And that triggered sequential droughts in East Africa in 2016-17. Then in 2019, the extremely warm water was just off the coast of Kenya in the Western Indian Ocean. And East Africa experienced flooding. You had, you know, the worst desert locust outbreak in 75 years torrential rains. And then since the book finished, <laughs> we've had two back-to-back -back La Nina events associated with incredibly warm waters, again, in the Western Pacific, a sequence of four droughts in East Africa, 
And actually, we're very worried that there's going to be a third year La Nina and that we're going to see yet another drought in October, November, December. But, you know, essentially by having this conceptual model, we can then, you know, look at the climate model forecasts and see where those extreme sea surface temperatures are expected to be. They're, they're predicted with a, you know, really high degree uh, of skill. And that's a very empowering perspective that lets us anticipate a lot of kind of droughts and extreme rainfall events. You mentioned working with firefighters in California during the droughts and different heat waves. What was their attitude like when you talked to them? Like, did they feel like they were fighting on the front lines of climate change or do they feel like they were just involved in a local disaster, not part of some bigger thing? And what are your thoughts on everything that they were saying? It really, in many ways, the book owes its existence to my friendships with some local volunteer firefighters. And so I live up here in the, the mountains behind Santa Barbara in an area that's wooded and, and highly flammable, right? It's like the perfect place for a fire. And we've had frequent fires in Santa Barbara. And my friend, Mike Williams has a community radio show and where he would talk about hazards and preparation. I started to go on his show periodically and, and that kind of grew to the book because it, it was really interesting to try to talk with non-specialists and describe the science behind what we're seeing. And, and firefighters are pretty different in, in general from than the kind of people that you find in a university setting. People from, from kind of usually blue collar kind of perspective. And so it was great to, to talk with them and to try to find ways to communicate climate change and climate change risk that are kind of resonate beyond the ivory tower. What did they feel like? Like what were their feelings? Did they have anything specifically to say did, about the larger problem or did they view it as like what life is in California? Cause my aunt lives in California and I think she's been evacuated four times in the last five years because of fire. And she just kind of views it as life now in California. The responses really had a huge gamut. There were some real fire experts who were kind of at retirement age who I completely failed to, to convince altogether and climate, there is no climate change. It's just sunspots or something. I think especially younger people are a lot more open to this and yeah, it's, it's yeah. Like your aunt is experiencing this. It's pretty, pretty unbelievable now. It's concerning, but on some ways I feel bad for for my family and all the people that, you know, are paying you know, $10,000 a year in fire insurance. At the same time, it, ironically, it's actually way better that we're suffering from these extremes now while we can still curb emissions than this sort of things going along smoothly for another 20 years and then we're at a point of no return. So it's a bit of a tough perspective, but People in California are definitely worried about climate change. And, and we just produced last week, 103% uh, of our energy requirements on one day. So we are actually producing more energy from renewables than we consumed. That's a good example of what we can do. 
We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.